millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is the world's largest producer of spoken audio entertainment, with over 150,000 downloadable audiobooks to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You can support this show by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography and signing up for a 30-day free trial and free audiobook download. This week, I want to recommend Richard Beeman's Plain Honest Men, The Making of the American Constitution, which was a great resource for this episode. member of the HistoryPodcasters.com network. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 11, Failing States. So, last episode, we talked about some of John Marshall's frustrations with Virginia's ineffectual legislature, his rise to prominence as an attorney, and discussed his evolving constitutional thinking, as well as his wife's deteriorating mental and physical health. This episode is going to touch on several shores, but I want to start by fleshing out last episode's discussion by providing some details of Marshall's social life and talking a little bit more about his emerging political philosophies, and then, finally, move on to discuss the United States as it existed under the Articles of Confederation and close by talking about the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Just to warn you, this is probably going to be a longer episode than usual. I hope you won't mind, and I hope you like it. But let's get started. During the post-war 1780s, Marshall's closest friend was James Monroe. You may remember, back from episode 1, they'd first become acquainted when they briefly attended school together as youths. Since then, they'd both served as officers in the Continental Army, both survived Valley Forge, and were both young attorneys and House members who'd been put on the Governor's Council. On slow days, they often found their way over to Formicola's, the local watering hole, that for many delegates, who had to travel to Richmond when the legislature was in session, doubled as a place of lodging. John Marshall was by nature a social animal, and Formicola's was undoubtedly a hub for entertainment. Here, 
much of Richmond boisterously gathered to shoot billiards or gamble at cards, which was a favorite pastime of Virginians of the day, as Marshall's account book attests to, and in which we can see him trying to track his winnings and losses. Albert Beveridge shares a rather wonderful description of the crowded inn, writing, Generals, colonels, captains, senators, assemblymen, judges, doctors, clerks, and crowds of gentlemen of every weight and caliber and every hue of dress sat all together about the fire, drinking, smoking, singing, and talking ribaldry. When Monroe eventually went to Philadelphia to serve in the Confederation Congress in late 1783, Marshall oversaw his friend's pecuniary interests at home, and also assisted Monroe in applying his land warrants, earned through his wartime military service, towards obtaining some 5,000 acres of western lands in 1784. Despite this apparent affluence, it's good to remember that land wealth is static wealth, and at the time, Virginia, as was much of the rest of the United States, was gripped in a liquidity crisis. Virginia, in particular, was in the process of trying to take hopelessly depreciated paper currency from the Revolutionary War years out of circulation, and what hard currency there was in the state was still relatively scarce. So that February, when Monroe wrote to Marshall and asked for the balance of his pay from the Council of State to be forwarded to him in Philadelphia, where he really needed it, Marshall had to say no. Expected tax revenues were late, or light, and he shared an economic assessment that he'd likely gleaned directly from his father-in-law, the treasurer. Marshall wrote, There is not one shilling in the treasury, and the keeper of it could not borrow one on the faith of the government. Pay likely wouldn't be coming until April, and to add insult to injury, Marshall had to tell Monroe that he'd been dodging his friend's creditors to boot, writing, I'm pressed warmly by Samuel Eng, who was a Richmond merchant, for money, and your old landlady, Mrs. Shearer, begins now to be a little clamorous. But to avoid going off on a tangent about Monroe, let me just say, and this is a spoiler alert, don't worry too much about the kid. Something tells me he's going to be okay. But turning back to Marshall, last episode we discussed the Posey Affair and how it clued us in to Marshall's philosophical and political development. But there were several other similar events that help inform us about the workings of John's maturing mind as he entered his 30s. In 1786, John had the opportunity to defend private property rights through his participation in a Virginia land case, Height v. Fairfax. Marshall was an attorney for the defendants, who were the heirs of old Lord Fairfax. Remember the proprietor? The Fezziwig of 18th century Virginia? It's his estate that we're talking about. But beyond the fact that the parties each claimed title over the same piece of land, the facts of the case are relatively unimportant compared to the principle at stake. Essentially, resolution of this question threatened to void the validity of the original Fairfax title altogether which was the ardent hope of the Commonwealth of Virginia, who had been pecking at the Fairfax estate since 1781, and the government was now becoming covetous over the rest of it. Ultimately, Marshall and his co-counsel lost the case 
to the extent that the Height family won its claim, but because of the manner in which Marshall and his co-counsel argued the case, the appeals court's decision also came with a reaffirmation of the larger validity of the original Fairfax title. And this was a major victory, not only for the heirs of the Fairfax estate against the encroachments of the Commonwealth of Virginia, but also for the innumerable individuals who had purchased land from the Fairfaxes over the years, whose titles were now also essentially validated. The same year, the State Assembly in Virginia called upon Marshall and one other attorney to arbitrate the claims of a Philadelphia merchant named Simon Nathan, who had sold military supplies to Virginian troops during the Revolutionary War in exchange for an IOU. The issue stemmed from the fact that Nathan believed the payment that he was due was to take the form of specie, whereas the government of Virginia sought to pay him in depreciated paper money only worth about 5% of its face value. The joint report Marshall and his colleague issued stated bluntly, First, there is no convincing testimony that the bills in question were drawn for depreciated money. Secondly, there are considerable proofs that the bills in question were purchased by Mr. Nathan as bills drawn for specie value. Part and parcel with his strong feelings on property rights, Marshall demonstrates in the Nathan case his strong belief in the sanctity of contracts. For John, a contract was a contract was a contract, and it didn't matter if it was between two individuals or the state and an individual. Both sides were legally bound by the terms of the contract. As an aside, I do hope you're taking note of these little things that Marshall is doing in Virginia, because in the business of storytelling, this is a little thing we like to call foreshadowing. But anyway, the final thread I want to pull on in this episode is the one I'm going to spend by far the most time on, the big picture view of the United States under the Articles of Confederation. Now, for most of the last eight episodes, we've been very and I think appropriately, Marshall-centric. But now, I want to jump in the Wayback Machine and return to 1775 to chart the waxing and waning of the United States as a viable political entity, up to 1788, so we can have the proper context to talk about the Virginia Convention in the next episode. So here we go. The Second Continental Congress opened in May of 1775, and sat in more or less continuous session until March of 1781, when it disbanded. In the interim, it served as an ad hoc government of an impromptu nation, though it was, for all intents and purposes, an extra-legal body, wholly lacking any de jure authority. Of the Continental Congress, historian George Bancroft wrote, whom did they represent, and what were their functions? They were committees from twelve colonies, deputed to consult on measures of conciliation, with no means of resistance to oppression beyond a voluntary agreement for the suspension of importations from Great Britain. They formed no confederacy. They were not an executive government. They were not even a legislative body. There was not a foot of land on which they had the right to execute their decisions. They had no treasury. 
and neither the authority to lay a tax nor to borrow money. They had been elected, in part at least, by tumultuary assemblies, or bodies which had no recognized legal existence, and they represented nothing more solid than the unformed opinion of an unformed people. Those powers the Congress needed to organize and prosecute the war, it simply took, such as in 1775 when it adopted the Massachusetts militia, then besieging Boston, and placed George Washington at its head, rebranding them the Continental Army, or when it declared independence in 1776 and sent Ben Franklin and John Adams to the courts of Europe to execute treaties and form alliances. The Congress's de facto authority sprang primarily from a lack of resistance to following its lead. However, the desire for legitimacy is ancient and powerful, and the delegates of the Congress must have had a sense that the unprecedented authority they exercised might not be sustainable if it were not put on the proper legal footing. Therefore, in June 1776, at the same time the committee to draft the Declaration of Independence met, so too did another this one to draft the first Constitution of the United States, the Articles of Confederation. Inauspiciously, it would be over a year until a final version of the Articles was approved for dissemination to the state legislatures for ratification. And even then, the letter which accompanied it seemed slightly exasperated and nearly apologetic. Here's an excerpt. This business, equally intricate and important, has, in its progress, been attended with uncommon embarrassments and delay, which the most anxious solicitude and preserving diligence could not prevent. To form a permanent union accommodated to the opinion and wishes of the delegates of so many states, differing in habits, produce, commerce, and internal police, was found to be a work which nothing but time and reflection, conspiring with the disposition to conciliate, could mature and accomplish. Hardly is it to be expected that any plan, in the variety of provisions essential to our Union, should exactly correspond with the maxims and political views of every particular state. Let it be remarked that, after the most careful inquiry and the fullest information, this is proposed as the best which could be adapted to the circumstances of all, and as that alone which affords any tolerable prospect of a general ratification. Things didn't exactly improve once the Articles reached the states for official consideration. Within the first five months, ten states had consented to the Confederation. However, ratification wouldn't be achieved until 1781. So what happened? The problem lay in the fact that all thirteen states needed to approve the plan before it could take effect. New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland, who were relatively small states, didn't want to see their larger counterparts get any larger, and decided to hold ratification hostage in an attempt to leverage New York and Virginia into ceding their western land claims to the national government. New Jersey caved in November of 1778, as did Delaware in February of 1779, but Maryland held firm, and kept holding out, and by 1781, other states were so irritated with Maryland that they began passing resolutions in favor of forming a nation without Maryland because, you know what, seriously, screw you, Maryland. Who do you think you are? 
but ultimately the carrot and the stick would be applied to resolve the impasse. Chesapeake coastal communities in Maryland were at this time being raided by the British, and local leaders wrote a French minister requesting naval assistance. And when that minister responded by casually asking if, you know, they'd gotten around to ratifying the Articles of Confederation yet, the writing was on the wall. But just as a sweetener, in January of 1781, Virginia ceded its territorial claims north and west of the Ohio River to the national government to be part of the future Northwest Territory. So Maryland could at least claim a partial victory and approve the articles the very next month. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Phew. All that work just to get this thing off the ground. Well, at least things will go smoothly from here on out, right? Yeah, well, not exactly. It is incorrectly perceived that the 1781 surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown was the end of the war. It's true that that was the end of formal military action, but to know this for a certainty is the benefit of hindsight. It took another two years before American independence was formally established, and the war didn't officially end until the Treaty of Paris was ratified in 1783. In the interval, it was necessary to retain men under arms in case negotiations broke down and fighting resumed. However, it didn't take long after Yorktown for the states to show even less support for the Continental Army than they had heretofore. And by now, the caricature of the selfless citizen-soldier that had characterized the early war effort had begun to fall away. Blankets, provisions, pay, pensions, there wasn't much trust any longer that any of these things would be forthcoming. The question of pensions hit the officer corps particularly hard, so it wasn't a surprise when in 1783, Major John Armstrong published a letter arguing that the soldiery should resort to the force of arms to take for themselves what Congress seemed unwilling or unable to deliver. Only Washington's personal intervention, along with his dramatic piece of political theater, 
in which he famously pulled glasses from his pocket to read the disgruntled officers a missive from the Congress begging their pardon while doing so, saying, I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country, to which the Newburgh conspiracy dissolved into shame and tears. Historian Richard Beeman describes the national government under the Articles of Confederation as a loose confederacy, and to my eyes, the United States at this time more closely resembled 13 sovereign states that were allied in some sort of international treaty organization, more than a single nation. And I don't believe that it's an exaggeration to say that if nothing had been done, or if the 1787 Constitutional Convention failed, that North America may have become as fractious and plagued by interesting warfare as Europe ever was. Beeman goes on to lay out the core issues that ultimately made governing through the Articles untenable. Writing, The Articles of Confederation suffered from three fatal flaws. It didn't allow the Continental Government the power of the purse, the power either to levy taxes directly or to compel the states to pay their fair share of the expenses of the government. It required unanimous approval of the state legislatures for any amendment to the Articles, including any amendment that might provide a remedy for the government's inability to raise revenues independently. And it failed to provide for a chief executive capable of giving energy and direction to the new central government as it sought to carry out its essential tasks. These failings manifested themselves in quick succession and led to embarrassments both at home and abroad. By 1785, payments on wartime loans made by France and Holland came due and went unpaid. With no power to regulate trade, individual states were helpless and at the mercy of European traders. For instance, when most of New England agreed to boycott British trade in 1785, there was no power that could prevent Connecticut from announcing that it was open for business and ready to reap the benefits of any potential economic windfall. With no power to collect taxes, the Confederation Congress was forced to make requests wrapped in patriotic exhortations. Between 1781 and 1784, the Congress took in less than a million dollars from the states, though it had requested more than two million dollars in just 1783 alone. And with nothing to back continental script, the currency collapsed. And this is when the phrase, worthless as a continental, rang most true. Promised bonuses and pensions to veterans would not be paid either, and in 1786, this, combined with other economic stressors in Massachusetts, such as a credit freeze, along with the scarcity of the necessary hard currency legally required to repay loans and pay taxes in that state, erupted into a full-out revolt known as Shays' Rebellion that included the closing down of county courts under the threat of violence in order to prevent foreclosures and property forfeitures in the western part of the state. Out of solidarity with the uprising, the Massachusetts militia refused to put down the rebellion when so ordered to by the Massachusetts governor. And as Beeman writes, While government officials in the Congress were among those most terrified by the threat, they had no money to pay a force of federal troops to quash the insurrection. Eventually, a private army had to be hired 
to put the rebellion down. Yikes. Before Shay's rebellion, there had been a general feeling that something should be done to fix the articles. However, after Shay, the opinion solidified into something's really got to be done. After an abortive attempt at a reform convention in Annapolis, which was abandoned due to pathetically low attendance, a second attempt was authorized to meet in Philadelphia to discuss ways to amend the Articles in 1787. This time, there would be enough attendees from enough states to get down to business. The bones of what would become the Constitution were laid out early in the convention by James Madison when his plan was rolled out proposing sweeping changes to the structure and substance of the national government. Called the Virginia Plan, Madison laid out what to modern people would be an instantly recognizable framework for the government, but at that time was a dramatic departure from the Articles, which had simply been a unicameral body wherein each state received a single vote. Though there would be significant changes to the Virginia Plan, it suggested three separate branches for the new national government, which would include an executive, a judiciary, and a bicameral legislature. In the original plan, both houses were allotted representatives to states proportional to population. As Beeman explains, this change in the nature of representation was what was truly revolutionary about Madison's idea. James Madison believed from the outset that the fight to create a system of representative government in which ultimate sovereignty resided in the people of the nation as a whole rather than in the states would depend on creating a national legislature based on the principle of proportional representation. Though in the final version, this feature would be confined solely to the lower house while the upper house would be dubbed the Senate, and there each state would be given voting parity. And much of the convention thereafter would, in one way or another, be occupied with the question of representation. The disagreements between large states and small states, between northern states and southern states, the issues of slavery, and of how to elect a president, to be understood correctly, must be viewed through the prism of representation. For in the new order that would come after the adoption of this Constitution, it was clear to all in attendance that representation equaled power, and arithmetic would have no mercy. This is why the small states fought and won equal representation in the Senate, and this same cold political calculus drove the debate over what would become the most shameful aspect of the Constitution, the Three-Fifths Compromise. As Beeman writes, in reviewing the controversy over the three-fifths clause, one comes away with a depressing sense of the near total absence of anything resembling a moral dimension to the debate. The three-fifths compromise was, fundamentally, about states' individual interests and not the morality of slavery. Those few Northerners, like Governor Morris, Rufus King, or Elbridge Gerry, who voiced unhappiness with the idea of counting the slave population in apportioning representation, did so either out of a fear that northern interests were being sacrificed to those of the South, or, as James Wilson phrased it, the disgust that their white constituents may have felt about being considered even in the same category as slaves. 
As historian Jack Rakove has observed, the three-fifths compromise is indicative of the extent to which all of the delegates agreed that two of the most important functions of the government were to protect the rights of property ownership and to distribute the balance of power in a fair and equitable fashion as possible. It should, therefore, not surprise us that the debate over the way in which slaves would be counted in apportioning representation and taxation would turn on issues of property and power. Balance is, on the whole, what the Finnish Constitution was all about. It cast as wide a net as possible, seeking to encapsulate and reconcile as many competing interests as it could. As I've mentioned, the House of Representatives would be based on population, a boon to large states, while the Senate would be devoted to the principle of equal representation, a concession to small states. The aforementioned three-fifths compromise, as crassly expedient as it was, worked for the North because it didn't count a disenfranchised slave as a whole person toward configuring the South's representation. Yet, by counting them in part, it gave the South more representation than was warranted, but served as an incentive for them to remain within the Union. The compromise that allowed the direct election of representatives in the House was key for nationalists, and the one that allowed the Senate to be chosen by state legislatures, which they would until 1913, was a salve for states' rights. A singular executive satisfied the wants of those delegates who desired a more energetic government, the same way the two-thirds congressional veto override satisfied those who worried about a presidential tyranny. Weaving all these together into a system that was remotely comprehensible took real skill and mental acrobatics, such as Madison displays in Federalist 39, when he wrote, In its foundation, the new government is federal, not national. In the sources from which the ordinary powers of government are drawn, it is partly federal and partly national. In the operation of those powers, it is national, not federal, in the extent of them, again, it is federal and not national. And finally, in the authoritative mode of introducing amendments, it is neither wholly federal nor wholly national. Everybody got that? On September 15th, the Constitution was unanimously approved by the state delegations in attendance, though Rhode Island never bothered to send a representative at all. While what occurred in the summer of 1787 fails to meet the strict definition of a coup d'etat, a neutral observer existing in a vacuum might be forgiven for applying the label. The delegates had, after all, ostensibly met to discuss and propose changes to the existing government. But after sitting in closed-door, secret sessions for nearly four months, without disclosing their proceedings to the public, it wasn't until September 19th when the plan began to appear in the papers, that it became apparent that instead of amending the Articles of Confederation, the delegates had gone ahead and simply created a completely new plan for the government and established an unprecedentedly consolidated republic, completely separate from the existing legal government. Reinforcing the perception of a coup would be the fact that approval for the Constitution of 1787 
would not be subject to the processes for altering the government outlined in the Articles of Confederation, which still said that changes require the unanimous consent of the state legislatures. No. To avoid that stumbling block, the new Constitution declared that it would need to be approved by just nine specially elected state ratifying conventions in order to govern all 13 states. To be fair, there are legitimate technical justifications why approval of the Constitution of 1787 didn't need to consider what the Articles said. One, this wasn't a change to the Articles, but was an entirely new system. But I think Pauline Meyer, in her 2010 book, Ratification, does nicely when she quotes a Pennsylvania assemblyman, Hugh Henry Brackenridge, who simply says, I don't see, for my part, what Congress have to do with it. Which perfectly underscores the point that by 1787, the Articles had proved so inept and so ineffectual, and had been so casually and callously violated for so long, that few could say, with a straight face, that it was legitimate any longer. With news of the proposed Constitution spreading, a political conflagration was ignited throughout the United States, which inspired some of the most robust and productive public debates in human history. As the arguments for and against were waged in the papers, the states went about preparing the special federal conventions which were to decide the issue. Virginia's convention was scheduled to begin June 2, 1788, and John Marshall was elected as a delegate. And with that, what I think is probably our longest episode comes to a close. But I've just got the briefest bit of housekeeping for you folks before I go. I want to let you know that I'm going to be traveling to the Pacific Northwest for my baby brother's wedding next week, and I'm going to take the opportunity to make a family vacation out of it. So this will be the only American Biography episode this month, and you can expect the next episode about the Virginia Convention, if all goes well, around the end of the second week of September. In the meantime, I've been assured that the HistoryPodcasters.com collage, which I teased last episode, should go up sometime soon. I'll be discussing the game-changing election of 1824, so do keep your eye out for it. Other than that, I'd like to ask you to please give the podcast a review on iTunes, and if you like the work I'm doing, consider donating through our PayPal, which you can do at AmericanBiography.Webs.com. Or if you don't already have an account, then sign up for the free trial with Audible.com by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography and help the show out and get a free audiobook. As always, you can like American Biography on Facebook and follow the show on Twitter at American underscore bio. And you, of course, can email me directly at American Biography Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, until next time, thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.